0: I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Our guests today are two of our nation's most celebrated academics, authors, and activists. Dr. Cornell West is professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University, but there is so much more to him. As a teenager and young man, Dr. West marched in civil rights demonstrations. He has co-initiated the Stop Mass Incarceration Network, and he has become a revered voice in the discussion of the most pressing topics of our times. Bakari Katwana is a journalist, activist, and political analyst who serves as senior media fellow at the Harvard Law School-based think tank, The Jamestown Project, and is the author of The Hip-Hop Generation, Young Blacks, and the Crisis in African-American Culture." Dr. West, you're a renowned academic, author, activist, and I think you're the only person in this room who has appeared in two of the Matrix movies. I'm pretty sure of that. Well, Brother Bakari, you just never know. You just never know. And Bakari, your books have been adopted into curriculum at over a hundred colleges and universities around the country. And I'm pretty confident you're the only person in this room who has been a consultant for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah,
1: you might be right about that. I am. To- I, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta I got
0: confess at the outset that I'm feeling totally inadequate, so um, bear with me.
1: What is the nature of this? This is the single greatest threat we have ever faced.
2: Then we request a ship be dispatched to ascertain the fate of the one. I wish I were able to comprehend the Council's choice in this matter. Comprehension is not a requisite of cooperation.
0: We have an awful lot to talk about. You both have professions, celebrated professor, and both of you are writers and commentators and thinkers. But you've dedicated your careers to ideas of social justice and social change. A lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are drawn to those areas, even if they're not doing the work. What was most formative for you in launching you down that path? Why do you do it every day? I mean, one
2: thing you never, ever want to do is sell your soul for a mess of pottage. Mm. The greatest American play ever written, The Iceman Cometh, by Eugene O'Neill. He says, is it the case that America has gained the whole world but lost its soul? That's Mm -hmm. his question in that play. How do we attempt to ensure that we never downplay the joy and struggle and trying to be in solidarity with others and accent only the pleasure for ourselves Mm -hmm. in a very narrow individualistic way. Mm -hmm. Once you lose sight of the joy, you can have all the pleasure in the world and you're still empty, you're still vacuous, you're still addictive, and you're still, in many ways, just living on the surface and very superficially uh, engaging the world. I believe in the primacy of the moral and the spiritual always tied to a systemic analysis of structures of domination. But the primacy of the moral and the spiritual means how you going to have the joy in the short time that you're here. And there's been such joy in struggle mm. for freedom and struggle for justice. Mm-hmm. You have a good
1: time. So many of the folks that do this kind of work are inspiring. It's just, they're just inspiring people. And you think about them. You think about them as you try to imagine how you can have an impact. I remember one of the first folks that was really a hero of mine was Geronimo Pratt. I go through Watts. I go through Chicago. I go through Harlem. The police departments in these various
2: situations in these cities, were actually the same thing we were in Vietnam, occupying forces. They didn't live in the communities. They came from another area. They didn't know the inhabitants of that community. And they were exploiting, they were imprisoning, killing. A lot of killing just plaques at random and it still happened in the day. It it was incumbent upon me to stand up and strike out against these things to stand and resist these things. The
1: humanitarian concern, all this is based on one thing. It's based on love. I was a college student when I first learned about Geronimo Pratt, and then I was an editor at The Source when I actually got to interview him after he got out of prison for 27 years for a murder that he didn't commit because he was fighting for justice, like that type of a freedom fighter. And he was just such a beautiful, just a beautiful brother. And I just imagined him as this huge, <laughs> towering, like, incredible hulk, you know what I mean? Like,
0: you hear these stories about
1: Geronimo Pratt and what he had done, organizing people and teaching people how to defend themselves. And Geronimo was like, maybe five, six. I remember meeting him, I was like, this, you're Geronimo Pratt? <laughs> but he was, he was larger than life in his spirit countless examples like that. I remember meeting Gil Scott Heron, talk about the artist.
0: You will not be able to stay home, brother.
1: You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials
0: because the revolution will not be televised.
1: Just a brilliant, beautiful brother. And I think these type of examples of the lives that they live. And you read about Gil Scott Heron's life. He, wrote, he did a book called The Last Holiday. It was his memoir uh, published posthumously. This is someone who's just self-emptying. Right. You know, he writes a memoir. Not so much about himself. (laughs) He writes a memoir about a a year that he spent traveling with Stevie Wonder to do performances to help to get the King holiday established as a national holiday. That's that's what his memoir is about. Even in writing a memoir, he's seen the importance of lifting up and contributing to the lives of other people
0: the two of you agreed to come here for a program being staged by One Hood Media, which I think is a force for fierce truth-telling in town. My friend Jaziri X is sitting away from the microphones here, determined not to say anything, but maybe you could on his behalf, (laughs) about why you're here and what the program will be about.
2: Well, I think what it comes down to is when you have such a grand and prophetic artist, as you have here in Pittsburgh and Jaseri X, when he calls, we come running. <laughs> uh, uh, he's been such a force for good. He brings together the artistic, the political, the social, and the spiritual. He's fundamentally committed not just to excellence, but also to justice, and to be able to have a dialogue, especially as it relates to the crisis in the country. How do you wrestle with that crisis in the name of a fundamental commitment to both love to justice to struggle and most importantly to sacrifice and service to the community. See What I think is distinctive about Brother Jajiri X is that he's a servant of the people. That's a rare thing among artists these days.
1: One of the powerful things about what he's done is to understand the importance of building locally and being in the community. I think that in this moment of social media where there is a fascination With being in the national spotlight, to be able to be as great of an artist as he is and still remain committed to being in the community that produced him. It's just a rarity. But I think that the power of it is you see it in the community building. Right. Yeah. Because he understands that if we're going to have an impact, yeah. It's going to be by building community.
0: That may be the very core, Bakari, of what Mm -hmm. this program is about, the idea that we're going to change the world by building community. I want to come back to what Dr. West mentioned about the crisis that we're in. And you have a whole segment of the country that says, we don't have a crisis, and then you've got another segment of the country that says, well, we've got a crisis, but it's on the border, and then you've got a whole bunch of us who think, no, we're in a deep moral and cultural crisis right now. What did you mean by it? Talk about that, if you would, a bit. I mean, the crisis is really perennial. I mean, poor people are
2: always in crisis. Mm -hmm. Large numbers of working people are always in crisis. And to be black in America, and be black in a white supremacist civilization so deeply shaped by not just a hatred, but a greed. So that's predatory. From slavery, 250 years. Then neo-slavery for another 100 years. And now we got Jim Crow Jr. Uh, So we got spaces for the unprecedented black middle class, but for the black poor and black uh, laboring class, they're still in crisis. Mm -hmm. Now we know the crisis has a number of different dimensions. It's economic and financial, but it's also spiritual. It's also moral. It's also cultural. And in the past we've had a spiritual and cultural richness while we had poverty. Now more and more it's spiritual poverty and an inability to love self, respect self and believe that self can, in fact, create organizations and sustain infrastructures in order to fight. Now, when that crisis spills over into the middle classes and now the well-to-do, Now, see, with Brother Trump, you got a crisis among even the ruling class, even the very, very wealthy know something that's fundamentally wrong in terms of morality, in terms of spirituality, and so forth. But for poor people and for working people, it was that way under Obama, they just didn't want to tell the truth about it. It was that way under Clinton, they just didn't want to tell the truth about it. It's certainly under that way under Bush and Reagan. The question becomes, again, going back to Jaseri, as an artist, who would tell the truth? The condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. That's everybody's suffering. It's black, brown, red, yellow, gay, lesbian, trans, Jewish, Arab, Muslim, whatever. It's a human crisis, but it takes different forms to live under a crisis where white supremacy and predatory capitalism and patriarchy is coming at you. That's one thing as opposed to a crisis living out in the vanilla suburbs where it's going have spiritual crisis and moral crisis. And still some precarity in terms of insecurity, but still have some finances. So it's different, but it connects us all because in the end, it's a human affair.
0: The history of America seems to be long and studied indifference to what you just described. Well part uh, so, of it. I mean you got the best of America.
2: You know we don't want to view America as monolithic or homogeneous. You got the yeah. best of America. Mm-hmm. Best of America of all colors. Right. The folk who are sensitive to suffering, folk who are willing to tell the truth, folk who are willing to bear witness for justice.
0: Yeah, and periodically that tendency rises and to the surface. Exactly. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. If you were to assemble a list, a hierarchy of concerns of problems this country faces, where would white supremacy be on the list? Right up there with Russia, probably. It's actually not a real problem in America. The combined membership of every white supremacist organization in this country would be able to fit inside a college football stadium?
1: The white nationalism is a rising threat around the world. I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. I don't know enough about it yet. are just learning about the person.
0: Yeah. What do we do in a moment when even using words like white supremacy puts... Forty percent of the population back on their heels and ready to deny that there's ever been a problem or maybe worse, kind of embracing that and saying, yeah, you know, that's who we are and proud of it. Mm. How do you help a culture see that it's in crisis when they fundamentally don't believe that they're in crisis or view the crisis as something different altogether?
1: One of the biggest battles is to make people aware and to educate There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of loud shouting going on, and a lot of conscious efforts to misdirect people. The whole idea of fake news, this new fashion Tower of Babel, (laughs) is really designed in many ways to help to create this chaos, so that people can't organize to resist it. We got to work to get people to see. Some of the notions that we have been married to as a country historically have been manipulated. So when we talk about democracy working, when we talk about the First Amendment, when we talk about the Second Amendment, when we talk about, you know, gun ownership, like these definitions that have historically made America what it is aren't working. We talk about government at the state level being manipulated to the point we got this situation with abortion, voters' rights, you know, all of these things that people thought democracy could guard against. Capitalism has usurped. Right. So you could have capitalism and democracy when you have a government <laughs> that is democratically run. But when you don't, and the capitalism is outmaneuvering the democracy, then I think you got something else. Too much For me, you see, the bottom line Mm -hmm.
2: is that just we as a species, you know, we are a particular kind of primates, right? Mm -hmm. You see, democracy is the best thing we've ever done Mm -hmm. as a species, but democracy is not some abstract thing, it's to try to render the greed and the hatred controllable enough that we don't kill each other. Right. That is a yeah. generational challenge, yeah. you see what I mean? Yeah, That's to any society, right. wherever you find human beings, right? So that democracy is a proximate solution to insoluble problems, because mm. there are always be insecurity, fears, and anxieties, given the fact that we're the kind of primates in the face of unavoidable extinction. We know we're all going to die. That creates certain insecurity and fear, and you can have religion and art to try to help you out, but there's no way out of space and time. We all got a death sentence in it. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, well, how do we relate to one another such that we don't have these hierarchies where you crush the vulnerable, you crush the poor, you crush the weak. And this is why Hebrew scripture was such a moral revolution in the species. To be human is to spread loving kindness to the vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We got to generate people who are going to be telling the truth on behalf of the weak who, for the most part, will be manipulated, dominated, and exploited. And when democracy as an ideal is so feeble, then you can see either fascism, authoritarianism, the greed, the hatred beginning to take over once again. Now, this is not new. We know the history of our species is
0: a very, very bloody, ugly history at its worst in america the assumption has always been that democracy would be strong and yet a lot of us really do feel that we're at a particularly perilous moment where there is a willingness even a stated willingness by the president of the united states to assert that if things don't go his way then there's something wrong with the system and maybe democratic norms should be changed why are we in this moment where democracy suddenly feels so
1: at risk Because it is. There it is. It is. I don't think that people anticipated that you could have people who were part of the country whose greatest commitment was to something other than the country. It's something wrong with allowing the wealth inequality to continue and to create structures that are supposed to guard against it that don't. Right. So, you know, right. we're sending these people to Congress. We're sending these people to the Senate. And there, there's an unwillingness to push back on it because there is the benefit of, you know, these are the people funding the campaigns. So we're in this kind of quagmire and we could luck our way out of it. But I think it's going to take more than that, which is why when you get these women that have come into Congress, this last election cycle, it's a breath of fresh air because you have almost an entire generation of young people who never have seen politicians like this. Right. That's going to need to be more of the norm. And we might need to break up this two party system to really get back to a point, because right now the wealth inequality is driving the machine on far too many things. And the commitment is not to. The best of everybody. We're not our brother's keeper right. anymore, if 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 ever. <laughs> yeah, right. But we're at an extreme point. I mean, you have these police shootings going on with regularity, and all this conversation about it, and it's still happening. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like that's a problem. Just in Philadelphia, you got 72 police officers who posted hate. On social media right, and the solution right. is not to fire them. The solution is to suspend them.
0: As if their views will change but while they're you, in uh, to suspension. Gonna, we're not
1: gonna get anywhere like that.
0: Yeah. We need right.
1: bolder leadership. Right. And we need people to stop making excuses. As human beings, we've
0: always struggled with the idea of how to be empathetic to others who yeah, don't absolutely. look like us and don't feel like they're our neighbors. And yet, Doctor West, the uh, Hebrew scripture that you were pointing to actually is the precedent of what is enshrined in almost every major religion, this idea that we should do unto others as we would do unto ourselves. And that doesn't say do unto others who are just like us, and yet it feels as though we are at a place of lower empathy than I can remember in my lifetime. Is that a valid observation, and is that part of what's happening in the democracy around us? I think it's a complicated situation because on the one hand,
2: what is most visible in a public way is a greed and hatred running amok on the ground, especially among the younger generation, Mm -hmm. you have more sensitivity and empathy Mm -hmm. than we've ever had in the country. We've got a younger generation so aware about transphobia, homophobia, white supremacy, predatory capitalism, much more than was the case when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. But uh, at the same time, you've got a greed and a hatred running amok among the population as a whole, but especially in public places. So there's this sense of dang, where's the integrity? Where's the honesty? Where's the decency? Where's the generosity now? It's just survival of the slickest. Right. Thou shalt not get caught. becomes the dominant (laughs) commandment in the (laughs) culture.
0: It does does feel right now as though norms don't matter. Exactly. And 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 Trump is just a symbol. He's not not the cause of it. Right. He's a symptom of it, you see. And the mentality is that I'll do what I can get away with. To be successful by any
2: means, so you end up with a cheating culture. We see it in scandal in relation mm-hmm. to colleges, mm-hmm. but it's true in high schools and so mm-hmm. forth as well, right. you see. Get over by any means to be successful, defined in pecuniary and financial terms. That is the benchmark of greatness, now, right. see, that is <laughs> right. spiritually mm. obscene. Right. Greatness has never been defined in terms of how much money. Yeah. See, That's a sign of an emptiness. And our artists, again, I think the right. artists have always said, you don't live by bread alone. You don't live by success alone. To be great is to love deeper, right. sacrifice more, tell the truth at a risk. It's history of the species at its mm-hmm. best. America has no monopoly on that, though. This is true around the world. But we had a unique and distinctive experiment in democracy. That mm-hmm. that's true. And to lose that, Is a profoundly
0: sad thing. It's terrifying actually how many people are willing to sacrifice that right now. Well, it's good, you know, the anxiety, the fear, but it's filtered
2: through the greed and the hatred. That's what we saw the other day with Brother Trump launching.
0: With your help, with your love and your devotion, and with your drive, we are going to keep on with our radical Democrat opponents. Are driven by hatred, prejudice, and rage. They want to
1: destroy you and they want to destroy our country as we know it. Not acceptable. It's not going to
2: happen. You see, you characterize your opponents Mm. as demons, they're out to destroy you. Right. Yeah, that's the most poisonous toxic language you can use in a fragile democracy.
0: I heard it referred to once and I think that's absolutely right as the language of ethnic cleansing. You know, when you start talking about your opponents as enemies becomes very easy to devalue their lives and their interests completely. But, but the liberal self-righteousness also needs to be uh, called it. Yeah, so talk strength, about that. Talk about
2: that. Yeah, because you see, what's happened is, you know, it's the this liberal sense of somehow they got a monopoly on goodness and therefore the right wing becomes just demons and devils and out to destroy them. Right, right. Both houses need to be critically examined and in some ways called into question. In the end, I think the liberals actually are better than the right wing But the liberals can be just as narrow. And you see, when you look at it from the vantage point of the chocolate side of town, Mm. (laughs) oh, you go to the hill and say, "Ooh, what do the white liberals look like from this vantage point? Mm -hmm. What do the right wing look like from the vantage point? Well, you need a critique of both. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, of course, you need a critique of yourself. What What do white liberals forget?
1: It's interesting now that there isn't a recession anymore, they say. (laughs) I think at the height of the recession, some of the stuff was more obvious. The Baltimore Youth Fund came before the voters, and they voted for a fund for youth in Baltimore after the Freddie Gray uprising. And this was as a result
0: of the Freddie Gray uprising. That's
1: right. And so it's a percentage of the real estate taxes would go to a youth fund to support youth development, once it was approved by voters, then they created a model around which there would be racial equity in the way in which the funds were distributed so that young people would actually see the bulk of the funds. Right. They would have a committee of folks who were selected by the community who would then select Who in the community was doing the work since they live in the community and they know who's doing the work. Now, it made a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Sure. This is not it's not racial equity. When every office I walk in to get funding, I'm sitting across the table from a a white liberal that don't live in the neighborhood. People want to talk about what's wrong, but they don't want to give up power. In the process to create what's right,
0: right. It's such a huge issue for anybody working in the racial equity space mm-hmm. and social justice mm-hmm. space. What is our relationship to power, yeah. and how do we share it differently yeah. than than we have? Yeah, which feels to me like that's at the core of the reparations argument too. That it's about sharing power differently. That makes a lot of us, you know, liberal or conservative, yeah. nervous if they think about. In terms of having to give something up. But it's almost unavoidable that we have to have that conversation about sharing power differently if we're actually going to do the hard work. But I think an important thing,
2: though, Brother Grant, is that even when you talk about power, though, you're not just talking about economic power, Mm -hmm. financial power. Mm -hmm. You're also talking about the power to define reality. So that reparations is saying look, we're concerned about the truth. The condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. Mm-hmm. So, that American democracy, precious as it is, is predicated on two monstrous crimes against humanity. It was the deep dispossession of land and the near annihilation of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of Africans. Now, we haven't even got to white working class people who were exploited. We haven't got the women dealing with domestic circumscription and so forth. Right. Your conception of the reality of America has to be contested, called into question. Right. That's true before you even talk about money, right. before you talk about institutional power. But when you got big power, away, economic and financial, you've been having the power to define reality. Right. What does fairness really look like from the vantage point of those who have different lens to which they view the world? Mm-hmm. So we've got to learn how to call into question the way in which we even define reality, which includes defining ourselves. Mm. I have nothing to do with those black folk on the other side of town, I know they're catching hell and it's a sad thing, and that's oftentimes the white liberal. Sentimentality, the cultivation of specious emotion with no intent of concrete execution. Crocodile tears fly, (laughs) guilt kicks in, no, no, we are human beings just like you. We want you to be decent, we want you to have moral integrity, which means solidarity. That's very different than looking down and having pity on those folk catching hell on the other side of town. Those are your fellow human beings over there. Mm. Those are fellow Americans over there. And in fact, you also ought to be the object of solidarity because your mama's gonna die no matter how rich you are. Right? Catastrophe's on its way to your house. Mm. You're gonna want some solidarity. Mm. You're gonna want some empathy. And somebody's gotta be there.
1: I just want to add to this, Dr. West, I think that justice has to be a part of an equation of reparations. We've created a situation with these police killings in which we basically are telling an aspect of our citizenry that you can have someone who you know and love and your family killed by the police and nothing is going to be done about it. Right. We can't be in a society without without justice there has to be justice. And if there is a part of the society that imagines that this is justice, th- that has to be rethought. Right. And then second, there has to be self-determination, because if you can't exact justice in a black community in which young people are being killed like this, then you need to get out of this community and allow this community to police itself. And to create a system of justice that you are either unwilling or unable to create. Right.
2: And when you think, you know, in a very concrete case of our um, dear brother Antoine Rose II and his precious mother, the spiritual strength required, the moral fortitude required to get up every morning and know. Hasn't been any justice for my baby. That's yes, right. Yeah. You see, yeah. now that's a human thing. Every parent can imagine that, no matter Absolutely. what color
1: you are. Absolutely. Now,
2: black folk tend to be the, uh, the, the target of it more so, percentage wise. But again, if we got to keep it at a human level, this is why the artists become indispensable leaven in this loaf. Right. And the loaf gets stale if the artists get weak and feeble, Mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are sacrificial. They're the ones who, in willing to tell the truth and give their all, they know they're gonna be crucified.
0: I love that art and its capacity to illuminate big questions has kept surfacing during this conversation. Artists are the storytellers of our society. They confront us with truth and with our common identity, which feels to me like such a need of this moment that we're in. From Dr. West's mention of Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh to present-day artists like Jasiriak's, artists lay bare the truth of the tension our country struggles with between who we are, who we were, and who we know we can be. Please join us for part two of our conversation with Dr. Cornell West and Bakari Kitwana on the next episode of We Can Be.